Well, thank you, worship team. Well, let's begin our time in prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning on this Pentecost Remembrance Sunday, and we praise you for your great work of our redemption on your cross, where you offered yourself in our place. We praise you for the power of your resurrection that we experience in our life from day to day. We praise you that you were ascended into glory and granted the Holy Spirit just as promised. And as we read and as we look back on that original Pentecost, under the new covenant, we observe your power in conversion through the Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we praise you that you opened the eyes of the spiritually blind so that they might see the gospel of the glory of Christ. We praise you that you empower your church and grant gifts to us in power that we can carry out the mission under the direction of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you promised that your presence would be with us And you've given your Holy Spirit to indwell us and to conform us, to guide us, to comfort us, to purify us. We praise you in your mystery and glory, our one true God in Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this Pentecost Sunday, we ask that you would open our eyes to the gospel, to see it anew and afresh in our lives, to understand that you, Holy Spirit, in our lives are the sign and seal of the new covenant. And we pray this morning that we would see this gospel and this covenant um, in all of its glory. And we pray these things for your sake, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, as we begin this this morning, a couple things I want to mention before we start. So, as you may have noticed, uh, I started a new thing in News and Notes. I'm going to be giving you monthly book recommendations. Now, don't worry, book reports are not required, but I will accept them if you choose to write them. But uh, the book I wanted to highlight uh, this, this, this particular month and the link is in there to buy it or to buy the audio version or whatever, is uh, True Spirituality by Francis Schaeffer. So some of you uh, folks might remember this book. It's actually 50 years old, believe it or not. But it still reads like a modern book. In fact, this is my third time through this book. And Francis Schaeffer was a pastor for a number of years. And, and one of the things that he observed, you've probably observed too. And that is, is that we as Christians make these bold claims that we love God with our whole heart and being and that we love people, but yet, why does it seem that in the church that isn't as true as the claim? That so often Christians bicker amongst one another, don't express love? Does the gospel really transform our lives? Those were some of the questions that Francis Schaeffer was asking, and and that's what led to the formation of Labrie Fellowship that he started in Switzerland so many years ago. But this book is a wonderful book. It doesn't just talk about that particular theme, but it's really about what does gospel transformation look like in our lives, and every aspect of our lives. And, And he does a wonderful job, very simply, applying the scriptures and theology to every aspect of our life and uh, so that we can become more and more transformed into the image of Christ. So I really encourage this, this book. If you want to get started and figure out what real Christianity is, this book explains it. And if you've already figured that out, but you want more real transformation in your life, then I encourage you to read this book. Again, book reports are not required, but I will accept them. So, also today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, it's my favorite uh, day in the church calendar, and there's a very particular reason for that is because I was saved on Pentecost Sunday. So uh, I will always be preaching Pentecost sermons on Pentecost Sunday, so that's just the way it's going to be. But uh, as many of you may know, I grew up in a traditional church and uh, did the traditional things. But I didn't have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ all those years, and it wasn't until my later high school years that I understood the gospel and all of its, its purity and who Jesus really was and what he did for me and developed an actual, God developed a personal relationship with him. Well, we're going to talk about that this morning, actually, because Pentecost is all about these promises in the new covenant, one of which is that we can actually have a personal relationship with God. So, again, Pentecost Sunday is one of three historical feasts in the Christian calendar that all relate to Jesus Christ. So you're very familiar with Christmas. We celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal Son who takes on humanity. 
Easter, and we celebrate his cross where he died for our sins, and we celebrate his resurrection into glory. Well, on Pentecost is the time when the church celebrates that Jesus was exalted and ascended on high, and he gave to his church the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so Pentecost, as we celebrate it, is really the anniversary of the coming of the Holy Spirit on the church to empower the church to do the mission. I mean, we have a very clear mission from Jesus, and that's to go proclaim the gospel to the ends of the, very, of the earth, and then to display that very gospel by powerfully transformed lives. We're not just mouthpieces of the gospel, but our lives embody what the gospel can really do for people. And our lives are a symbol of hope to those that are perishing, that our lives can be different if God would transform them. And so we'll talk more about that this morning. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 8. The whole chapter has been printed for you in your worship folder. But we're talking about the superiority this morning of the new covenant. Now, simply put, a covenant with God is a relationship that God establishes with a people of his own choosing. You might remember this kind of language in reading your Bibles. You think about God's work with Adam at the very beginning, his work with Noah, his work with Abraham, with Moses, with David, with the Israelites. And one of the things about God's covenants, it's not really a contract, but a covenant is different. They're one-sided agreements with God. He determines, he picks out a people, and he determines all the terms of the covenant. People don't determine the terms. He does. But belonging to that covenant with God is so much more of a blessing really for us than it is for even God himself. We're we're blessed to be recipients of his covenant love and live our lives in service to him. And that's what the whole book of Hebrews is really about. And Hebrews 8 is the central argument of the text. And so we'll be looking at that this morning. We'll just simply read it as we go. But there are many, many aspects to the new covenant that our Lord Jesus established with his blood. And today we're only going to focus on really the three items that we'll get to later on in Hebrews 8 that is a complete quotation from Jeremiah 31. But there is so much more in the Old Testament and in the New Testament about what the new covenant brings to us as the church. But I would summarize it this way, that when the Lord Jesus brought us the new covenant, there's two things that we really want to focus on. That is, this covenant gives us full forgiveness. This covenant gives us the fullness of the Spirit. And he is now in heaven administrating all of the benefits of this new covenant in our lives. You know, Jesus Christ is simply superior. That's the whole book of the whole book of Hebrews. Chapter 8 is the highlight of the discussion, comparing Jesus' priesthood and his covenant to Moses' priesthood and covenant, and showing that Jesus is simply superior, and that the whole deal with Moses was to predict what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would bring. And so in verses 1 through 7, we'll read about how Jesus Christ's priesthood is a superior priesthood, and in verses 8 to 13, that it's a superior, his covenant is a superior covenant. Now, it's always hard to jump in the middle of a book, a book of the Bible, a book you might be reading, because you don't know the storyline, you don't know where we are. But chapter 8 is very centrally located in the sense that verses, or chapters 5 to 7, is all about the priesthood of Jesus. And then chapter 8 summarizes it all for you. And you can go back and read that if you'd like to. And then chapter 8 is also talking about the superiority of the covenant. Well, that's what's coming up in the book. So all of chapters 9 and 10 are about the superiority of the covenant. So we're right in the middle of that. And, you know, the suggested uh, synagogue reading time, if you will, for the book of Hebrews is 50 minutes, 5-0. It doesn't take very long to read the book, actually. And it's a homiletical style book. In other words, the book of Hebrews is really a sermon. And if you go to the end of the book, chapter 13, 22, it talks about how it's self-defined as a word of exhortation to the church. Now, someday we'll preach through the book of Hebrews, but you, know, you can read it and enjoy it on your own anytime. So, uh, and I just want to say that you know, my wife memorized the whole book of Hebrews. The whole book. And one Sunday morning, I said, okay, well, we got plenty of time in church today. Just recite it for us. And she did. I won't ask her to do that today because I don't think she remembers it all at this point. But, but so the book of Hebrews is so worth committing. Even if you can't memorize the whole book, you can memorize portions of it. 
and you can read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful part of the New Testament. So first, let's talk about Jesus' priesthood and, and how it's a superior priesthood. So in verses 1 to 5, we have the main point, the main point of the book. And then in verses 6 and 7, we read about the superiority of his ministry that Jesus has as our high priest. And so the chapter begins, now the point, and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So in verse 1, I just want to take you through this pretty briefly. Verse 1, Jesus Christ, you'll notice, is enthroned as the priest. Right? So this is the, the author of the book of Hebrews begins. So this is the main point for you. And that means that Jesus is both the priest and the king after the pattern of Melchizedek. Well, that's chapter 7 in the book. And ministering on the behalf, then Jesus does for his people. And he holds both offices in a manner that supersedes the old system, the old covenant. And in fact, this fulfills prophecies of the Messiah. Psalm 110 talks about the uniting of these offices and the fulfillment of them in the Messiah. And now we don't have time this morning to, of course, go into all of that, but if you were here for our Easter series, we spent a lot of time just looking at Psalm 110. On Palm Sunday, we looked at it really from an Old Testament perspective, and then on Easter Sunday, we looked at Psalm 110 from a New Testament perspective, and on Good Friday, we looked at Hebrews chapter 7 and sort of tying that all together. So if you were here, I encourage you to go back, look at your notes, or listen to those messages. They are on our website for you. But so these offices are brought together. That's the main point. And so much flows out of that, our author, the Hebrew says. And the focus here now is even more on the priesthood that as he talks as we go along. The argument is that the Levitical priests only served in a shadowy sanctuary. A shadowy sanctuary in the Old Covenant. One in which it had this imperfect correspondence only through symbols of what the reality really was. But Jesus Christ, he serves in the true, the genuine, the eternal sanctuary with unrestricted access to God. So in verse 3, the priestly ministry of offering gifts and sacrifices for sins, according to the law of Moses, that was set up as a copy of a vision of heavenly realities, foreshadowing something better that would come in the course of the history of redemption as God would bring it to unfolding purposes. And Moses received detailed instructions in the book of Exodus on how to erect the tabernacle, which of course eventually would be the model for the temple. And we read in Exodus 25:40 these words, and see to it that you make them after the pattern for them which was shown to you on the mountain. Okay, it's referenced, quoted here by by our author. And these are repeated words. So if you go and you read this section of the Old Testament, just as I showed you on the mountain, you know, that's repeated frequently in the Exodus account. And the complete section is Exodus 25 to 40. So you can read that all on your own if you're interested in all those details. But this whole Levitical system was sanctioned for God, by God for that particular period in the history of redemption. And the system had an inherent limitation on its validity, because it was a copy. It was a preparation. It was a training for the appreciation of the reality, which is in heaven, and the ministry that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, would perform. But yet at the time, Yahweh safeguarded that whole system as the proper approach to him as the most holy God during the Old Covenant. Yahweh set up a system of worship for himself where his people could dwell closer to him than they ever had before. And the Exodus experience is really exciting storyline. 
especially if you can put yourself in the mind of the people at the time. The physicality of the tabernacle and and the tangibility of that priesthood was right there in your face, and you could, in a sense, sense God's presence. And yet, even the people under that time frame, under the Old Covenant, could sense that, well, this can't be all there really is. There has to be more. And that sense is what drove then the prophets to preach about what would come in the fullness of time. Jesus Christ would provide the superior fulfillment of the system. Again, as it's noted here, Jesus was not of the tribe of Levi. He would have been unqualified, if you will, as a Levitical priest. But that's the whole point. Jesus transcends the system. He is priesthood. His priesthood is after the order of Melchizedek, meaning that he's above it all because he's the very son of God. Now, this gets clarified as we turn ahead. So if you have your Bibles with you, just turn probably one page over to chapter 9, starting in verse 11, and it gets even further clarified. Starting in verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained an eternal redemption. And then skip down to verse 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, the Levitical system was necessary for worship under the Old Covenant, but the New Covenant worship through Jesus Christ has replaced it. It's a superior fulfillment. Jesus Christ offered up himself the once-for-all guilt offering for our sin that covers all of our sin and completely atones for it. Jesus Christ continues to minister on our behalf in the heavenly places, bringing to us all the benefits of this New Covenant he ratified by his blood. And so then the author continues in verses 6 and 7 to point out the superior ministry of our high priest, Jesus. But as it is, back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Jesus' priestly ministry is better because it's based on the mediation of a better covenant, which we'll get into in a moment, which would bring better promises. Something that Jeremiah prophesied very clearly as well as other prophets. Jesus' ministry in his cross and on his resurrection was actually effective. It didn't need to be repeated. It can't be repeated. It's completely effective for the, for the eradication of our sin before, and our acceptance before God the Father. And Jesus' ministry in the Holy Spirit provides the real means by which we can persevere and, and obtain etern- our eternal reward and inheritance. The Holy Spirit actually empowers us for obedience. And we'll talk about that in a minute too. We'll look at these promises. They're detailed in verses 8 to 13 here, which is a quotation from Jeremiah. The second covenant was necessary because of the unfaithfulness of the people under the first covenant. They did not keep the holy law of God. In fact, they couldn't keep it. And the history all throughout the Old Testament traces this disobedience. And yet this too is part of the purpose of the first covenant. That's part of its purpose purpose is to show that human beings on their own cannot keep the law of God. It's impossible. We cannot do it. It's to show the sinfulness of humanity. It was God's intention from the very beginning 
to make this first covenant temporary so that he could eventually magnify the holiness of himself and of his son and magnify the sinfulness of humanity so that we could actually truly see how sinful we are. The second covenant was enacted because the first one could not and was not even designed to achieve all the promises that would come through the Messiah of glory and grace. God designed it this way, to make the history of redemption a progressive thing, to magnify His grace and mercy, and above all, to magnify Jesus Christ, the true God and true man, as the one who is the truly obedient one and the one who would offer up Himself the perfect, pure sacrifice for His people. To magnify Jesus as Redeemer, as Priest, as King. He is the key point of the history of redemption. And so Jesus Christ's priesthood here is a superior priesthood. And there are many more details to examine in the book of Hebrews. I just simply summarize for us the main point, and that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here right in the middle in chapter 8. You're going to have to read the rest of the book on your own. Now, I think it's really important to point out at this point that the application for us is mainly in the realm of enriching our knowledge of God and His purposes. That's a significant application, you know. Did you know that application is not always doing something? Sometimes application is about knowing something, about studying what God has given to us in His Word, and knowing that He has a design in the history of redemption and how He has brought it about and causes us to develop in our faith and our worship. And the more we know God better, the more our worship can be enjoyable to us and more enriching and more thorough in praising God for who He is. Now, it's also important to understand that these two covenants are not in opposition to each other. They're related to each other. As I already mentioned, they're progressive in fulfillment. The second covenant, another way to look at it is it's like a renewal of the first one, but in a very different way. They're both covenants are divisions of one eternal covenant called the covenant of grace, which is the declaration of the covenant of redemption, which is the agreement amongst the Trinity and how they would save among humanity. And so this new covenant then is the covenant of grace given a fresh meaning, an outworking in the age of the Messiah and the Holy Spirit. You see, the old covenant was excellent in itself for its time, but its time is over. And the new covenant is incomparably more excellent and eternal. And so we need to appreciate more fully the old covenant so that we can appreciate more fully the new covenant. That's one of the purposes of why the book of Hebrews is in our Bible. You know, we don't reject the old covenant and the tabernacle and all that stuff just simply because it's old or it's in the past or somehow, well, now it's irrelevant so we don't even need to care about it. But hopefully we can look back and take joy in the proper progression of God's history. It's his history. He designed it that way. And so, even the scriptures itself, God designed the text of the Old Covenant for us as God's people, and and in one way, for them, of course, at the time, to be able to love and perform God in anticipation of the Messiah coming, but it's designed now for us under the New Covenant to look back and, and to love and to reflect God in the fulfillment of what's happened in the Messiah. And that's how we read the Old Covenant. We read it from a New Covenant perspective. So remember that the tabernacle and its system at the time was the fullest revelation to the people of God yet. God provided something very real for them, a very sensory drawing near to God. And then, in the fullness of time, the Son of God appeared, and He Himself said, something greater than the temple is here. Jesus Christ is the perfect propitiation in His blood for the people of God. He's the true sacrifice for our sin, not some animals. He's the true high priest, not just some sinful man, who entered into the true tabernacle in heaven, not just a copy that was erected by human hands. Jesus Christ fully bridges the holy separation between God and his people. Jesus Christ opens up a new access for us to worship and to enjoy God 
Jesus Christ brought about a superior covenant that's full of forgiveness, that's full of the Holy Spirit, and he from heaven now administers all the blessings in our lives. Well, Jesus Christ not only was his priesthood superior, his covenant is superior as well. And that's where our author continues, starting in verse 8, where it says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is the prophecy of Jeremiah from chapter 31 in his prophecy. And then the covenant change in verse 13, we'll get to at the conclusion, is complete in verse 13. But as this prophecy quotation begins, the assumption by the author of Hebrews is that this prophecy of the new covenant, which is in Jeremiah 31 and other places, is for all the peoples of the world, not just for the physical descendants of Abraham. That's too part of the glories of the new covenant that's prophesied all over the place, especially in the book of Isaiah. And we enjoy talking about this at Calvary Church, and that's why one of the reasons we're studying Luke, because he makes this very, very plain. And as we did at Christmas, we looked through the uh, songs of the servant who would come, and two of them make this very clear. Isaiah 42, verse 6, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness, and I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. And in Isaiah 49, 6, he says, it's too small of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. So I will also make you a light to the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You see, the new covenant contains a multitude of new realities for this new order, for this new expanded people of God. And you have to read and comprehend all of the New Testament to comprehend all of these promises. Now, there are three in particular we're going to look at today, so you can write them down. They're pretty easy. It's verse 10, 11, and 12, 1, 2, and 3. Okay? So there are three particular promises about the new covenant that I want to draw our attention to this morning. Uh, I'll tell you what they are, and then we'll go through them briefly. But first of all, in verse 10, it's that God puts his laws into our hearts and minds. That's a unique development. Second promise of the new covenant reality that would come about in verse 11 is that God would allow each and every one of his people to know him intimately and closely. That, that's a new development. And the third blessing of the new covenant is that God removes our sin permanently and completely. That's a new development. And so we begin here, first of all, God puts his laws into our hearts and minds, and we read, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, the new covenant promises the making of a new mind and heart, and so making us obedient by the Holy Spirit. This is in great contrast to the Old Covenant because now our obedience as God's people would be more thorough. It's a radical empowerment at a whole new level for the purity of the people of God. It means that we in the New Covenant can actually, truly please God. Now, not because we do it in our flesh, but it's because the Holy Spirit has been granted to us, dwells within us, and empowers our life to be spiritual. That's a real blessing, to know that you can please the Lord. So a couple passages, back in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, this is also part of New Covenant Promises, in Ezekiel 36, 25. 
It says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. And I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's quite a transformation. It's a spiritual transformation. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. An astounding promise from the prophet Ezekiel. This is exactly what Jesus is referring to when he has that conversation with Nicodemus and he said, you have to be born again. That's what this passage is talking about. The spiritual rebirth that would come. Jesus answered in John 3 and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Because it's already in the Bible. And then, looking ahead to our experience, we read in Romans chapter 8, and you read the whole chapter, but just the first paragraph says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. And there's so much more in the the book of Romans about this and in the New Testament about living our lives filled with the Spirit, being able to please God, and be so close to him. And that's the second promise of the new covenant we see becoming a reality in verse 11, where it says here, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. The second promise is that God is going to allow each and every one of his people to have an intimate, close, personal relationship with them. That's amazing. That God would allow that. And the new covenant promises us this deep personal relationship with God. And it comes about through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the contrast with the old covenant is that now in the new covenant, all people who are members of the people of God can know him closely, intimately, personally. Everyone in the covenant community and the the people of God has this privileged relationship now. You see, because it's not just as you read the Old Testament, Moses He had a really personal relationship with God. It was just Moses or the priests or the prophets. But you see, in the new covenant, everyone who has faith in Christ gets to enjoy God's presence. That's great, isn't it? In Romans 8 again, verse 14, it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God is our Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 4, verse 6 says similarly, because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, which cries out, Abba, Father. And there's so much more. You read the book of Galatians. It continues to talk about this personal relationship. You read the book of Romans, especially chapter 8. It talks about this personal relationship that we have with God. That's a second great promise of the new covenant. The first is that we have that spirit within us that causes us to walk faithfully. Secondly, that we can have a personal relationship with God. And third, and most importantly, of course, he saves it for the last, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and remember their sins no more. God removes it permanently and completely. You don't have to worry about your sin because Jesus paid it all. The new covenant promises that the Messiah 
would finally rescue us from sin. As you read the Old Testament over and over and through the storyline, you wonder when is forgiveness actually going to ever happen? And there's great assurance then in the new covenant that our sins are forgiven. You don't have to wonder. Will he forgive me when I'm dead? Am I really forgiven right now? You see, the contrast with the old covenant is that now in the new covenant, there's this historical realization that it's finally come in Jesus Christ, and he put it all away. This hope has been proclaimed throughout the Old Testament, but the most important Peace is that the reality now comes with Jesus Christ. And that is one of the greatest blessings of all, isn't it? To be able to serve God with an unburdened soul and conscience. Look, Hebrews talks about that too. To be able to serve God because you know His Spirit dwells in you, that's going to keep you in holiness, it's one of the greatest joys of being a Christian. I hope that's one of your greatest joys of being a Christian and your experience is know that you can serve God with a free conscience. You can serve him knowing that your sins are all taken care of and that everything you do is going to further his purposes. It's so thrilling. In fact, all of Hebrews 10, the next chapter, is wonderful. And here's one verse that just summarizes it. 10.14, for by one offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That's us. So finally... Should note that although all these promises have been fulfilled in the new covenant, it's not that they were non existent under the old covenant, but they were only realized to a much lesser degree, as if they were just sort of a, a foretaste of something greater to come. We might say a copy of reality, but not reality itself. A shadow, but not the substance. But it looks forward to that. It tells us there is something more that's coming. And so those three promises that we just read about, they're there under the Old Covenant, but at a much lesser degree. I mean, God gave people His law, but it wasn't deep in their soul by the Spirit of God. See, God was present with His people, the tabernacle, the temple, other ways, other times, but not inside by the Holy Spirit. Under the Old Covenant, yes, God forgave sin, but it was only in promise because there was a constant repetition saying, well, it's not here yet. It's not here yet. Nope, not this year. When the Messiah comes, that's when it's taken care of because he would offer up himself. Then you think about our experience. It's completely new, but you know what? Ours still is not absolutely full. Because we're looking for Jesus' return. And that's when all of these three promises get ratcheted up, transposed, if you will, to a new key. A completely new thing yet again. Because then we'll live in absolute conformity to God's will. Here, we just experience this progressive sense, but we still struggle and battle against our flesh. Won't it be great to be free from that and to perfectly keep God's will. That's coming. Second of all, when you look at the second promise about knowing God, I mean, the scriptures talk about how we just see in a glass darkly. Oh, we see a lot, but we don't see in fullness. But when that day comes, as the scriptures say, we will know God as we are known. And the third promise of the new covenant we're going to receive the completion of our salvation, body, and soul in resurrection glory. You know, here we live in weakness, and our bodies are evidence. But then, on that final day when we're resurrected in glory, our bodies are never going to die again. There's not going to be any more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. It'll all be over, because we'll have the completeness of our salvation. So we rejoice in this progression that God has orchestrated in his history of redemption for his people he loves. And then finally in verse 13, the author of Hebrews states that the covenant change is now complete. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
You see, the author of Hebrews sums up his presentation here by explaining why this covenant is called a new one. Simply put, because the old one is rendered obsolete. That simply means it's not in use anymore. Because there's no use for it anymore. That's why. God had fully accomplished his purposes under the old covenant made with Moses on Sinai. And we no longer use it directly in the redemptive program of God. It's only a background to highlight the glories of his eternal son. The fading away of the first covenant could refer to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which many commentators like to point to, but perhaps a better understanding explanation is just the natural dissolution that would occur, occur as the new covenant order takes hold, perhaps both. But there's also an implicit warning here that is all throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews, and that's a very important warning. Because of certain tendencies that we have as weak people and actual problems that infiltrated the early church. And you can read about this all over the New Testament, but three books in particular point to it. That is the book of Galatians, the book of Ephesians, and the book of Colossians. You see, we must not seek to return to live under the old covenant. You can't. You won't live under it. You'll suffer under it. But even more importantly, you'll deny Christ because he is the fulfillment. And we cannot mix old covenant practices into new covenant realities for the sake of some kind of nostalgia because that also denies the glories of Jesus Christ and draws our attention off of him onto things that are just mere shadows. Why look at the shadow when you can look at the substance? The in, this insults God and Christ and his explicit purposes and grace and glory in the superior covenant. So be careful. Do not let your heart and your mind be fascinated with the old covenant. It's been a perennial problem in the church since the very beginning. You read about it in the New Testament, and the Apostle Paul is extremely strong, could not even state it stronger than he does on why this is a danger of losing the gospel. Jesus Christ's covenant is a superior covenant, and the point of Hebrews 8 is that God made a new covenant. Through, mediated through Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one who reigns as our king, ministers as our priests from heaven, the Lord Jesus is our new covenant high priest. He brought us a superior covenant, one that's full of full forgiveness, one that promises us a full blessing of the Holy Spirit that he administers from heaven. This is fascinating, very exciting chapter. This whole story of the history of redemption is amazing. And I just gave you a very, very quick overview from the perspective of Hebrews chapter 8. So I'm hoping for a few things this morning that we can all go away with. I know it's been true of me this week as I've been meditating upon them, but hopefully we've grown in our appreciation of the old covenant. It's all in the book of Exodus. You know, it's really easy to find these things, so just read the book of Exodus. There you go, you have the whole thing, okay? And hopefully we've grown in our experience of the new covenant. That's really easy, too. Just read the whole book of Hebrews. I mean, it's all there. It's the whole thing. It's like the New Testament version of it. But then it makes the new covenant so clear, and hopefully we've grown in our anticipation that that's not even everything. There's more coming when Jesus returns, and it's going to be even greater than what we've experienced to this day. Our Lord Jesus has been ministering on our behalf in the true sanctuary. Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. He ministers on our behalf. He brings us the grace and the mercy and, the, and everything we need to live our lives, all through the Holy Spirit that he has granted to us. And in this new priestly ministry, he's performing a superior liturgy. He's bringing these effects of the new covenant to reality in the lives of the people in his church, individual people. It's not just a theological concept. It's into your life, into my life, into the life of the people sitting next to you who believe in Jesus Christ. These are realities. And he dispenses this grace that he purchased for us on the cross in our lives to truly transform us as his people. We've been called out of the world to be different. 
And that difference doesn't come about from just effort on our part. It comes about because the Holy Spirit indwells us and produces the fruit of righteousness. So take home and consider these three blessings of the new covenant that are articulated for you in Hebrews 8. The new covenant has made us a new mind and a new heart that makes us obedient through the Spirit. And think about how you might live empowered by the Spirit for even more joy and obedience in your life. I hope that's what you want. Second of all, the new covenant has established a deep personal relationship with God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So think about how you might keep growing in your relationship with God. And if this morning you're listening to all this and it just seems foreign to you, seems odd, it doesn't seem to match up with your experience, then please talk to myself or Ramey or others, elders, leaders, who can help you understand what it is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the person who brought you to church today. The new covenant Messiah has also fully rescued us from sin and given us assurance by the Holy Spirit. So take home and think through how you might live your life more boldly. As Christians who've been completely forgiven, our basic disposition is not to sit around and bemoan our sin, that we're not as perfect as we would want to be or hope to be. It's to sit around and meditate on Jesus Christ and what he's done in our life. And the assurance that we have, it's all taken care of. I don't have to worry about it. When, my, when the evil one accuses me or some other person accuses you of something, Jesus died for your sin. It's over. And you have that assurance by the Holy Spirit. So how can you live more boldly knowing that you're free? You see, Pentecost is a time to celebrate these kinds of realities and to reflect on these kinds of questions as Christians. It's providential that this particular Sunday, too, that we're celebrating the Lord's Supper here in a moment, because on, that's part of the new covenant as well. This, this symbolizes the whole thing, the Lord's Supper. And on that evening when Jesus inaugurated this ceremony, this is what he says in Luke 22. This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood, the superior covenant that we've been talking about this morning. So at this time, those who are going to help me with the Lord's Supper, if you would please come forward. Well, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we're celebrating this morning, of course, was instituted by our Lord Jesus for his church to remember his work on our behalf, his, our union with him by faith, our continuing communion with him, and really to remember that all the promises of the new covenant, as we sung earlier today, actually, are all yes and amen in Jesus. That comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, actually, that every promise in Jesus is yes and amen. And so as we participate this morning, we're here for spiritual refreshment and uh, refreshment of our souls that comes from Jesus himself. And so we come with faith. And the Lord's Supper, you see, isn't really that complicated because it's really just showing us the gospel that we already believe in again, this gospel. And it strengthens our faith. That's the one focus of the church. Nothing else is to be allowed in the church other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I came to you knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why we're here every Sunday is to celebrate what he's done for us and today more tangibly in the celebration of the Lord's Supper because this bread that we partake of signifies the loving sacrificial death of our Lord Jesus for our sins. He offered up himself in our place. The cup symbolizes his blood, which he shed, and the new covenant that we've been talking about this morning, it's ratified by his blood. In other words, it comes into effect. 
He makes it a reality. All those promises. And the meal itself is just a tiny way of showing us that the kingdom has begun in a small way. But the kingdom continues to grow, and when Jesus returns, it will be here in its absolute fullness. And so we look forward to that as well. Now, we celebrate the Lord's Supper here, this communion table, as an open celebration. In other words, if you've been born again by the Holy Spirit, that you've been united, in other words, another way to say it is united to Jesus by faith, you're invited to participate with us. You don't have to be a member of Calvary Church because there's really only one true church that serves Jesus Christ. And if you're a part of that church, then we want to fellowship with you because we are all one in the Spirit. Now, we also know, too, that you know, it's for those who are believers in Jesus. So if you're here this morning uh, not as a believer in Jesus, you know you're in that category, we would ask you not to participate by partaking and eating and drinking with us, but by praying where you are and praying for the application of the word that you heard this morning from God, and that salvation would come to you today. Maybe you could get saved on Pentecost, too. It's a great day to be saved. And brothers and sisters, we know that we're supposed to come to the table in a worthy manner because when we come here, we say, I love God, I love my brother and sister in Christ. And there are plenty of warnings in Scripture that if you come as a hypocrite, God will judge you. But we come to proclaim that, and of course, we know none of us are perfect. We come knowing that we're humbled by our sin, but we're exalted in Jesus, and there's both of these things going on in our hearts and minds at the same time that Yes, Lord, I know you died for my sin and it's all gone, but I'm still a sinner. Yeah, that's right. But Jesus took it all away. It's all taken care of. And by his spirit, we are progressively becoming more and more conformed to the very image of God in his son, our Lord Jesus. So listen to the words of institution according to Matthew. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So let us pray, and we'll we'll celebrate together. Father God, we thank you so much for what we're celebrating this morning, Pentecost Sunday, celebrating this table, celebrating your eternal plan for redemption in Jesus, our Lord, the eternal Son of glory. And this bread, Lord Jesus, it symbolizes that you offered up your body in our place as a substitutionary atonement for our sin because we couldn't atone for our own sin. We thank you that you favored us by your grace and that you've even granted to us your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, you yourself modeled this humility in coming from eternal glories to take upon yourself our frail condition in your incarnation. You suffered, uh, though the perfect man suffered under great unrighteousness by the world, but you lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and would give us the accumulation of that righteousness to be our very own. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for your ascension, for your reign, and for your return. All of these things, this enormous plan of redemption, make us joyful as we remember it together this morning. Amen.